Hey, so if you're listening to this, or you're not listening yet, but if you're listening to me talking, you're about to hear a lecture from Psychology, also Biology, 2606, Introduction to Behavioral Neuroscience for the fall term of 2023. How in the hell is it 2023? That means I'm 58 years old, and I imagine that makes me old. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this, but, uh, you know, if you're one of my students, great. Uh, I'm glad you're doing this, and I do this for you. If you're somebody else listening, I really don't care what you think, but uh, actually, it's pretty great because I'm really good at this. Enjoy. It works. I'm very excited. Okay, so let's uh, let's start the first show. Right. So today and Wednesday, I'm going to talk about sort of introductory ideas. I've called it history and origins. I think the book even called it that. Um, and basically, just introducing some ideas. Basically, it's, it's the it's the classic what is lecture. Every course you ever take starts that with this, doesn't it? So what is statistics? This thing hurts something else. But yeah, so what is. That's, that's what today's class is about. So, this course is about the relationship between brain and behavior. As I said before, this course used to be called brain and behavior, but I thought it was a stupid title, so we changed the title. But it's obviously about how your brain, your nervous system, controls your behavior. So if it's about that, and the relationship between those things. This is a pretty long tradition academically. This goes back ever since people have been thinking about thinking, and that goes back probably ever since the first people ever built a fire and sat around it at night and had fun to not do anything other than sit around the fire. They probably started wondering, I wonder how thinking works. Why are you different than me? They all talked, all neolithic people spoke like that. No, they didn't. But they were thinking, and they had language. People have been thinking about these things for a long time, and more recently, of course. Once we have to define a couple of terms, notably brain and behavior, we can maybe look at that relationship. Let's not say maybe. We can definitely look at that relationship between those two things, okay? So that's what we're going to do, is we're going to see if we can define behavior and define brain. And that sounds way, 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 way easier than it actually is. It's not super hard, but it's, it's a little more complicated than I think most people would imagine. That travel mug works almost too well. Coffee's still too hot. It's a little upsetting. So what is brain? You ever know that, car you know that cartoon, Picking the Brain? 
Go look it up, thinking your brain's great stuff. This, this mouse was trying to take over the world every night. And there's actually a tremendous neuroanatomy lesson in one of the episodes. Like, it's really great. Pinky universe. Anyway, so, what is, what is brave? Well, it's a thing you can kick. What I mean by that is you can touch it. It's a real thing. I don't suggest touching someone else's brain, because right, they're probably using it to have CD. Yeah. But the point is, it's a real thing. You can touch it. You can kick it. A friend of mine, old friend of mine, Rob, always says, if you can't kick it, it ain't real. And I got some, I got some sympathy for that. So this is a real thing. It's a tangible, actual item, right? So it's the tissue itself, right? Or an organ. As a rule, if you look this up in a, if you looked at in a dictionary, you'd see something like that. Is it just the wrinkly thing in your head? Yes, it really kind of is, right? It really is just this wrinkly goo in your head. The cool thing is the wrinkles are the same in your head as in your head as in your head as in your head as in my head. That's pretty freaking cool. One of the things I think you'll find out about this course, and I think one of the cool messages of this, of stuff like this in general, is that people look way, do we all look way different from each other? Hell yes. But we're all really pretty much the same. Do you know that the most uh, inbred animal is a cheetah, I think. Inbred mammal. Second is us. We go back to about 2,000 people that survived a climate disaster about a quarter of a million years ago. Wow. So we're all cousins, all of us. The very most, the very most anyone is is a 26th cousin to anybody else on Earth. You're all related. We're all the same people. Just, we're all related. So our brains are all the same too, which is really cool. Unless you got some kind of thing. But yeah, is it the wrinkly thing in your head? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, but there's certain things, for example, that a spinal cord you can't do. Right? So if I removed your spinal cord, which I wouldn't do because it would be very mean, and I believe you're probably using it, the, you wouldn't be able to walk. In fact, there are, there are sort of neural motor programs in your spinal column. So your spinal column's important in, in behavior too. It's simpler behavior. It's not high order cognition like we're hopefully all doing right now. It's still important for behavior though. So you kind of need a spinal column. So maybe we have to include that when we talk about brain, right? Okay. So definitions, the definition in a dictionary, it's a thing in the head. We have to concentrate not only on the brain itself, but the cerebellum. Picture. Now you'll see why. Remember I said the other day that I'm, I'm, I'm legally blind? Watch me draw. <laughs> so here's a brain, which looks suspiciously like an army helmet. And then underneath here, you've got like what's called a, that's the cerebellum. Cerebellum is Latin, it means little brain. 
literally. I knew taking Latin for four years would pay off eventually. Ah, oh, high school. I took Latin for four years. Like, I, I, can say, I can say very few things in Latin, but I can still say things. If, if I ever saw a dog standing on a table, I could say, Canis est immensa stat. The dog is standing on the table. Then I would say, Pestus, Fercafer. You pest, you scoundrel. That's from a dialogue I learned <laughs> in Latin. Anyway. Cerebellum. Cerebellum's important in all kinds of things. Smooth movement, quick movement. Things like that. So it's not your brain. It's like an extra little tiny brain. It's at the back right here, right underneath your occipital bone. Huh. So there's that too. There's other parts of the nervous system we want to talk about brain and behavior and the relationship we have to talk about too, right? So there's all kinds of stuff. So it's not just your brain itself, it's other neural circuitry that's all over your body. We're going to concentrate mostly on brains, but not solely on brains. Okay, questions so far? Good. Yes, John. So what the definition of the brain could do with certain types of behavior? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. If the definitionally, the problem with a definition, if you look it up in a, in a dictionary, for example, is that dictionaries just tell us about how people use words. They aren't like laws. So when you say brain, you mean the thing in your head. When we say brain in this course, we still mean the thing in the head. When we talk about brain and behavior, we're talking about really, and we talk about neuroscience to get more broad, we're talking about the whole, you know, the cerebellum, the spinal column. There's all kinds of nerve, nerves. Heck, there's a nerve, here's one. There's a nerve right there. Your ulnar nerve, right? And if you do this, you touch it. Let's do it the right way if I can. Okay, I gotta stimulate the nerves. I gotta. There it goes. <laughs> okay, one more time. That's not as good on that arm. Let's try this one. There we go. See it? There you go. Yeah, see it? Twitch is. <laughs> that's simple behavior, but it's still behavior. And that's being controlled by this set of bundle of nerves right here in my elbow. So yeah, we talk about the whole thing. So how do these things relate? And this is what I think John was getting at, is that how do we know what controls what? What's the relationship between brain and behavior? This is called the mind-body problem. This has been something that's been, this is the thing I've been talking at the very beginning. And I said, psychologists, philosophers, etc., have been talking about these things forever. Are the mind and the body separate things? Right? This is a good question. Okay, so I'm gonna ask, and there is a right and wrong answer to this, but don't worry about getting the right and wrong answer. But I really do want you all to answer. So put your hand up if you think the mind and the body are separate things. If you, that's for anybody else. You have one, I, I think most of the two of you. Good, thanks. Thanks, guys. Anybody who thinks the mind and the body are the same? Okay, I'm going to do it again. Because some of you are sitting there like this. <laughs> I'm asking a question. It's okay to be wrong. Because one of these is wrong, these answers. How many people think the mind and the body are separate things? Put your hand up if you think they're separate. You said they're separate, you said they're separate, you said they're separate. This is good. How many people think they're the same thing? Or they can't be separated? Okay, and the rest of you are that undecided group of voters who I hate. Anyway, <laughs> I don't hate you. I hate what you stand for. 
Uh, I didn't even know what that meant. I just thought I'd do that. I thought I'd talk about that, you know. It's still early days, so I'm still... Anyway, yes. Uh, no, they're not. Guys, where do you think your mind comes from? Wait, John. Oh, okay. Yeah. Your mind comes from your brain. <laughs> your brain's in your body. They can't be separate. They feel separate. Oh, boy, do they feel separate. Right? Why am I standing here talking over here? Hello, world. See, I'm blind. I can't even tell. I just... <laughs> that was acting. That was acting. That's acting. But, uh, yeah, so the mind-body problem is something people have been talking about forever. The book talks about this, right? It talks about people like Descartes, etc. So the mind-body problem is a real thing people have been concerned about. Psychologists, neuroscientists stopped worrying about the mind-body problem a long time ago because we realize it's not a problem. <laughs> Philosophers think it's a problem. What do they know? Not enough about this. Other things, they know lots. So they're not really separate, right? They feel separate. They certainly feel separate. Okay. So let's talk about the nervous system. So we have very broad, there's a lot of ways to, to, to split these things up. So we can talk about, generally, the central nervous system. The central nervous system is the brain, the cerebellum, and the spinal column. And one of the hallmarks of the central nervous system is that the, the, the communication is all neural, meaning it's neuron to neuron. It's brain cell to brain cell. It's synapses. Okay. It's electrochemical. And generally, your central nervous system cannot repair itself. Okay, so if you get a brain lesion, a lesion just, you know, like a damage, it can't be fixed. It can't. Okay. Um, so if you get a cut on your arm, the skin regrows and you're fine. Right. Also, yeah, everything's good. If that happens in your brain, oh well, hope you didn't need that bit. Right? Or think about this, if you're in an accident of some sort, your spinal column is severed, you're paralyzed, that's it. You can't. There's no fixing that. Depending on how severed it's cut. There's no fixing that. Someday, and I would imagine in our lifetime, that would be possible, but it's not possible yet. when we think about the nervous system, I think when people think about the nervous system, when they think about it, you say intro-psych or whatever, or just generally in non with neuroscience and courses, this, we're thinking about the central nervous system, the CNS. There's also the peripheral nervous system, or the PNS. Those are the nerves that make you move and sense the outside world. So these are the nerves that, you know, go from my spinal column to to my legs and my arms and my fingers and other things. And they allow me to walk, right? And it's cool because what's happening, of course, is there's, there's messages coming from the brain telling my legs to move, but it goes all the way through my spinal column down the legs. Feels automatic. It's not. It's not 
Central to the peripheral, exactly. And then the neurons from the peripheral nervous system synapse onto muscles, making muscles contract. They also can, can, can detect everything from you know, uh, temperature, like, well, not temperature, heat and cold. Those are two different things. Uh, they can detect, well, vision, so you can see where you're going. Maybe you can. Uh, hearing, and also where you are, your, your sort of proprioception, so knowing where your arms are which is an odd thing to think of, but you don't have to actually think about knowing where your extremities are. You just know where they are. That's all happening automatically. The communication here is also still neural, so you still release neurotransmitters onto muscles to make them contract and, and relax. But it's also the case that, so the, the, that well, sorry, the big difference here is that these neurons can regrow. So if there's damage, it can come back. Right? Now, really bad damage might take a long time to grow back. My two thumbs, I, I do the cooking at home, and I like cooking. I have sliced the tips off both of my thumbs before. You cook enough, things like that happen. It's just, if you use a mandolin, you know what a mandolin is? I don't mean Yeah, I mean that kind of mandolin. And you always think when you use it, I don't need to guard. Use the guards! <laughs> I was cutting, and then I, got part of my thumb, and I put my hand, uh, it devoids it bleed. Uh, so I put my hand way up in the air like that to stop myself from bleeding, and I yelled at my wife, Isabel, can you come here please for a moment? Which is way more calm than I would, should be at that point, but she was on the phone. She said, I'm on the phone. I said, could you hang up? This is really important. She comes in, she what are you doing? I said, oh, I've really very badly hurt myself. She can't fix it, no problem, but it's still a little numb. And this one's just from not using a knife that's sharp enough. It's interesting. This is from something near sharp. This is from a knife that wasn't sharp enough. And I said, sharp knives, guys, sharp knives. Um, but they still, there's not complete feeling there. So it didn't grow back perfectly, but it did grow back. You can see they're flat. So, but it did grow back, right? We all, as kids, hurt ourselves, skinned our knees, etc. And you know, it's not like we have we're numb everywhere. So it can grow back in the peripheral system. All right. So how does this work? Let's use a, a simple, one of the simplest possible behaviors I can think of. Let's do a bicep curl. You know, one of these. Yeah, I'm going to the gym. Oh yeah, that's right. I don't know who that guy was I just doing there. Character <coughs> workshopping. Anyway, so let's think about a bicep curl. Pretty simple behavior, right? Pretty simple behavior. The muscle needs an agonist and an antagonist. An agonist makes the muscle do something. An antagonist stops it. Okay, an agonist makes something happen. An antagonist makes it stop. So the agonist is going to be releasing a neurotransmitter onto the muscle to make the muscle contract. So motor neurons, those are these neurons that actually synapse onto your bicep, release a neurotransmitter onto your bicep that makes your arm grow. It's completely, it's so weird to think that it's completely a chemical thing that's happening. It's so 
If you don't think that's cool, I, again, I don't think you understand what cool means, but it is neat, isn't it? It just happens, but it isn't just happening. It's a, it's, it's a bazillion chemical reactions, which is just wickedly cool, right? I don't know, maybe you don't think it's cool. Well, you should probably leave then, because I think it's awesome. Um, right, and then eventually though, it has to, uh, a sensory neuron detects, so not just one, <laughs> literally tens and thousands of them detect when I can't curl my muscle. And it's a stop. That's another neurotransmitter that's released onto my muscle that makes it stop. And then release. This is incredibly simple behavior. This is simple behavior that's using literally millions of neurons because the neurons in your brain are sending, so the, my, the left part of my brain sends, infra, it's, sends sensory, so it's right about, or some motor, right about there-ish, okay, ish. And it sends, so it's left part, part of my brain, sends it down my spinal column to my right arm because it's, you're wired contralaterally, left to right, right to left, okay? And it sends this information from the left part of my brain through my spinal column all the way out and down into my bicep. And it seems to happen right away. Like when I think, do this, it does it. The weird thing about it is you're not aware of all the processes that are happening there because it takes time. It's not immediate. It doesn't act like a, uh, electricity getting to a light. It feels like it does it, doesn't it? It feels instantaneous, it's not, but it feels that way. Which is cool as hell. Question? Okay. Yes, John. So, um, what does the simple behavior do to a uh, loss of neurons when you're? What does what do? What does the simple behavior do to a uh, loss mm. of neurons when you're? Okay. So, if, so yes. If you have, you have a lot of neurons using this here, and I'll get to this in a sec. But it's simple. The behavior is very simple. Is what the point I'm making. So you get that? It's very simple behavior. That's not me commenting on people who work there saying they're simple. Okay. So. What I'm saying is this extremely simple behavior. We would probably say it's not very cognitive if you want to use a term, meaning there's not a lot of thinking involved. There's not a lot of higher order cognition involved in doing this. Yeah, and it's simple, but it uses a lot of neurons. It uses literally, as I said, probably tens of millions of them. It's a lot of neurons. So the behavior is extremely simple, but it's using a lot of neurons. On the other hand, this is where we get the connection. If we take a look at how a moth avoids a bat, wait, okay, that's fine. 20 bucks, give me 20 bucks. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course, because it's 30. Um, so let's talk about moths and bats. So this is what's called a noctoid moth. It's just a kind of moth. They aren't that big, that disturbing. Imagine moths that big. Right? I don't want moths that big. So, moth ears, this kind of moth, basically has two neurons. Tells you how simple an animal this is. There's two neurons, A1 and A2. They've been given those names. So here you can actually see a bit of a, uh, I guess a schematic of the neuron, I'm sorry, of the ear of a moth. So 
you can see that the, mostly it's air sacs. Remember, this, these are things that have to be light because they fly. So there's a lot of empty space in, same thing with birds. Um, but you can also see here that the, it says tympano. It's, it's, like, it's an aerodrome. It works the same way your ear works, except it's way simpler, but it's literally the same thing. Pretty cool, right? So, basically what happens is sound waves come this way, this thing vibrates, and it's detected by those neurons. It's the same way your ear works. Okay. So, these neurons, A1 and A2, they are Frequency sensitive, but do not respond to low frequencies. What do I mean by that? Oh, so they're not frequency sensitive. So they're not frequency sensitive. What that means is they don't detect different pitches, right? The pitch of a sound, like low, high. God, I can't believe I just did that. My singing career is over. No, it never started, so that's good. Um, so that's. A moth couldn't distinguish between those two sounds, but it could detect the sound. Well, you know what? Those sounds are too low. It couldn't detect those sounds. There are sounds that are so high that only different animals that aren't us can hear. You can hear up to maybe 20,000 hertz. I, I imagine none of you can hear 20,000 20, hertz because we live in the 21st century. There's too much noise. So your ears are damaged enough. I can probably hear up to about 11 or 12,000 because I'm 58 years old. So there'll be sounds you could hear that I can't hear. There's also sounds, however, that no humans can hear, but let's say moths can hear. But they can't distinguish between different frequencies. So they all sound the same to a moth. So what's happening here, you can see, the most important diagram is this one here. So you see there's a muscle that controls a wing. Okay, so the muscle controls a wing. And there's the ear. The ears on moths, they don't have them in their heads. They're on their, the sides of their bodies, the side of the thorax. So this is ear on a moth. So if you want to yell at a moth, you go right up to its side of its body and go, hey moth! <laughs> but they couldn't hear you because it's too low. Uh, so it's hooked up, and it's hooked up almost like almost directly to a muscle on the opposite side. Eh? That's cool, and you'll see why in a second. Okay. So let's take a look. This is some real. This is classic stuff. This is from the late 1950s. Uh, a guy named Rader, R-A-E-D-E-R, -E -E did this. And what he did is he took these neurons and he subjected them to different frequencies and different intensities. That's just loudness. Let's look at the A1. Don't just ignore the A2 for a sec. Let's look at the A1. So the, the higher this is, right, the louder. So you see it. This is, and this is how many times it fires. A neuron fires, that just means that, that, that electrical impulses happen and it's released in neurotransmitter. Okay, so the louder it is, the more it fires. 
And the way you measure this is you put what's called a microelectrode, which is just a very thin piece of wire across the cell membrane of a neuron. And then back in the old days, you would hear a click and a little tick would go on a piece of paper. Now it's just all through a computer. So when that thing has fired, that neuron fires, the researcher hears a click. There's a classic story, in fact, of a biology professor, uh, Barry Frost, at uh, University, Queens University, who was working with owls, and he had an owl, the graduate student has had an owl in a soundproof room in a different part of his lab. And it had a microelectrode across the neuron. A neuron in the, the, the auditory area for this owl. And the neuron kept firing. Click, 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 click. What's going on? Why is it doing that? Well, they just figured the equipment was bad. Maybe it's the gear. So they double check. No, gear's okay. Oh, the, the, the animal must be hearing something in the soundproof chamber it's in. Let's check. No, there's nothing. And then this grad student had another grad student come by, and then it started going click, 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 click. And the more people that were around, the more clicks you heard. Any, any thoughts about what, what, the, what, what the owl's actually hearing? What I guess. Heartbeat? Yeah. It's hearing the heartbeat of that graduate student in another room that's soundproof. That's how well owls hear. So that's what's happening here. Now, with these experiments here, it's just done with a moth, not an owl. But it's the same idea. Every time there's a click, the cell has fired. So this should tell you something about the moth and about the uh, owl. There's a thing that we talk about in animal behavior. It's a German word, and that word is umwelt. U-M-W-E-L-T. And that's the sensory world an animal lives in. The umwelt of a moth or of a, is different than yours. They don't see like you do. They don't hear like you do. Trying to get inside their heads is something you can't do. Try to imagine what it's like to be a moth or a animal. <coughs> So A1 fires when we have more intensity. That means the closer a sound is, the more the neuron fires. So if it's closer, in fact, if we were to draw, we could draw a little graph. We could say we get a firing on this axis and distance on this one. Right? And you'd see that there's a one-to-one -one relationship, right? The closer it is, the more firing. A single neuron, a single freaking neuron is encoding the distance that something is away from the moth. Do you see that? Does that make sense? Okay? So that's what that thing is doing. It's, it's, it's detecting that. Now, A2, as you can see, let's take a look at A2. Nothing, nothing, goes crazy. So it's a really loud sound. If it's a really loud sound, that must mean whatever's being detected is very close. You can probably guess what's being detected here are predators. 
Moth ears have one function. Detect predators. That's all they do. That's why you need <laughs> you got to devote two neurons to something. It's not like you're, you know, moths aren't worrying about like, oh, I don't know, man, it's not uh, encrypted, it's not, uh, I only listen to 256-bit loss in this audio. I hate people like that. <laughs> Idiots. You can't, but your brain can't tell the difference. It's literally impossible with lossless and glossy. Anyway, it's a whole thing. No, I can't. No, you can't. One day my brother and I will do that experiment and write that up. Hmm. Still too hot. So A2 fires with very loud sounds. So it's a bat that it's detecting, by the way. So bats are what moths are detecting because bats eat moths, which sounds like a really bad title for a horror movie. So human hearing goes up to about 20,000 hertz. Moths start hearing, not like moths, around 110,000 hertz. So if you talk to a moth, which would be weird, but if you felt like it, hello moth, how are you? He couldn't hear you. Couldn't hear you. So it, wouldn't, it would see your lips moving, but it wouldn't hear anything. I'm sure it's also terrifying being a tiny little thing and this giant thing's like, hello moth, how's it going? Pretty good to be us, right? We're wrecking everything, but we're still us. Um, we've screwed this place just basically to death. But it's pretty awful. But we've got iPads, so come down with that. Think about it. Um, so these neurons are only—they're not the frequency doesn't matter here. It's only loudness. But the frequencies that matter—it only starts firing when the frequency is over about 110,000 hertz. In other words, where Bats send out signals. You know, yeah, yeah, the bat signal. You know what? A, you know what? Bats use sonar, right? They send out signals, ultrasound, so it's higher than humans can hear, and they can detect how long it takes for the sound to bounce back off an object. And by doing that, they can then detect how far away something is. Again, this umwelt word, the umwelt of a bat, is so different than anything you can possibly imagine except that they can paint a picture with sound that is as accurate as your vision is, just, which you still can't imagine, but it's cool as hell. So bats use sonar, which is something you know, the Navy uses to detect submarines, etc. Okay. You ever seen the movie Hunt for Red October? Great movie, you should see it. And uh, it's a submarine movie, and at one point the... Uh, the uh, main character, Sean Connery's character, says, uh, We already saw our contacts, Mr. Kavanov. Which is what I said when my wife was having ultrasound with her daughter. I said that to the, the sonogram technician, because I'm an idiot. So then when we went into, for the next kid, we went in, she said, You're not to say, Do we have any sonar contacts? I said, I promise you I won't. But of course, I'm an idiot, so what I said is, give me one ping, Vasily. One ping only. Which was funny for me. No one else thought it was funny, but I didn't care. And then I had to explain the joke to the poor woman doing the thing, and my wife hates me. But that's what well, she should. Point is, sonar's cool. 
Detecting where something is by how quickly it bounces off. Amazing. But bats, you know what you can do with bats? You can actually put them in a completely dark room and put up like piano wire, guitar strings, threads, hang up all over the place, and then let one fly loose in the room and let the bats go in. And then watch a night vision. And they just avoid all these strings and they're doing it by sound. Yep. Small star hearing, did you say like a hundred thousand? About, about hundred and ten thousand. That depends on the moth, but these moths, these noctoid moths, about hundred and ten thousand. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. So what happens then? You could actually here's. So when the A1 neuron fires, it makes the because it's hooked up to the opposite wing, it makes the wing on the other side fly. Like it's directly hooked up, and every time or like beat, and every single time that that neuron fires, this wing beats. So the closer a predator is, so you're the predator, so what I'm gonna do, so you're making ultrasounds, I'm gonna fly away. <laughs> cool thing is though, I got two these, right? So what am I going to do? It's going to turn me around. It's going to slower, slower. Now it's going to keep this as I fly directly away. Right? What the moth has done, it's actually done a 180 degree course correction away from the bat. Are you not, do you know, how aren't you just completely floored by this? Um, it's literally my favorite science. When I first learned about this, I thought, I'm going to talk about this every chance I get in my career, and I do. The only time this doesn't come up is uh, statistics. Yep. Is that behavior purely automatic? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah well, cool. The moth isn't planned. That's pretty cool. Yeah, there's no need for the moth to plan. That's the cool thing about it, right? Because it's just... Oh, still that's yeah, it's just a device curl. Don't have to think about it. But yeah, it's even less than that. That's the cool thing about this. Because it's directly hooked up, it just flies away. It literally is electricity. It's electricity and it's electrochemical. So there's an electrical component and a chemical component, and that's about one third of the course. Yes. Now, there's that other one, A2. A2, if you note, it only fired when it was really close. What A2 does is it turns off all inhibition in the moth nervous system. If you're a moth or, one sec, one sec, John. If you're a moth or if you're a human, a lot of what your nervous system does is it's inhibiting things. Right? So it's stopping you from doing things. Right? Yes, John, you had a question? So, um, so does to affect the, uh, uh, the left wing or the uh, right wing? Mm. Yeah, so the left ear is hooked up to the right wing and the right ear is hooked up to the left wing. So. If, now again, let's just imagine this. So if you're the predator and you're sending out these ultrasound signals, that hits here. This is going to make this wing beat faster than this wing. So it's going to turn me, right? Until these two ears are getting the sound at the same time and it's gonna make me fly directly away from you. Yeah, so left to right, right to left. It would work the same if it was right to right, left to left. Just that's how it's, for some reason, 
Evolution really likes nervous systems that are wired contralaterally. No one really knows why. If you can figure that out, why there's so many contralaterally wired organisms on Earth, you will win a Nobel Prize. So if you do figure that out, just when you win the prize, just say I told you about it first. I just like my name mentioned. You, you can even say I'm a horrible person. <laughs> I just like to be mentioned at a Nobel Prize thing. That's all I ask. Yeah, so that's what's happening. Now the A2, like I said, what it does is it turns off inhibition. A lot of what your nervous system does generally, and it doesn't matter if you're a human or a moth, is it does inhibition, right? There's a lot of things you don't do, right? You walk into somebody, you bump into somebody, what do you do? Oh, sorry about that, man. You don't punch him in the face. <laughs> but if your inhibitions are turned off, you might. So if you're at a bar and you've been drinking, well, let's say you've not been drinking. You walk into a bar, and this has literally happened, I think, to more than one of us. I see some knowing looks around the room. You walk into a bar, there's some people there, they're having fun, you mistakenly bump into a guy, he's clearly been there since about two o'clock yesterday. <laughs> and he's hammered. They say, you, you want to fight? And you're like, dude, sorry, I just was, I bumped into you. That's because his inhibitions are turned off, right? That's also why people make all kinds of very bad life decisions when they're drunk. Or other drugs. All right. Okay. So what that does then is it is like last second evasive maneuvers. The, the wings just start going like crazy. And it's unpredictable, so the, the bat could never learn what moths do when they get really close. So what you have then, think of these two examples. We got one with incredibly simple behavior doing this. It's incredibly simple behavior. And the other one that's look is incredibly complicated. It's literally doing vector mathematics in three dimensions. The moth doesn't know it's doing that, but it's doing it. <coughs> Your, your nervous system is constantly doing calculus. You're not aware of it, but it's constantly doing calculus. All the rates of change to catch a baseball, you'd have to know when to put your hand out to do that and where to do that. You have to detect how quickly the ball's decelerating. That's calculus. Your nervous system does it. You don't know how to do it, maybe, but your nervous system does. Same thing's happening there. So what I'm saying is that just because a behavior looks simple, doesn't mean it has to use hardly any neurons. Just because a nervous a, a behavior is complicated looking, plotting a course away from a predator, but it's not complicated, it's simple. It's two freaking, it's like three neurons. <laughs> oh, there's another one, B. I didn't tell you about B. You know what B does? It detects if the, if the uh, wings are down or up, so it can then detect if it's above you or below you. This makes it more complicated, so I can tell you that's part of the story. All right, questions on that? So you can't always tell if a behavior uses a lot of cognitive architecture, or hardly any, based on how complicated it looks to us. Yes? Does the A2 preventing inhibitions contribute to the uh, moth not resisting, almost, the wings flapping the general? The wings, the wing, the wing flapping at that point, it's, it's a last second, it's a last ditch effort. So this is when the bat is right, is about to get you. Mm -hmm. At that point, the moth can't play fly as fast as the bat. So at this point, it's basically just random movement. 
it's random, unpredictable. Right? So that's all it is. It just, what's that? Which I don't know. My impression of a moth when A2 is firing. It's a very niche impression. I can't really take it to Vegas. All right. Other questions? Good? You okay? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Uh, no. Okay. So let's talk about the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system communication is different. Mm. There's central, there's peripheral, then there's the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system is basically runs on hormones. This is chemical. It's not neural. There isn't, mm, yeah, let's just say that. There isn't an electrical component like there is. Close enough to rock and roll. So, Hormones get secreted into the bloodstream by ductless glands, and that changes behavior. That, that change happens, oh, the, you, you probably know this, the pituitary gland is the master gland, it detects various concentrations of different chemicals in your bloodstream, I'm not gonna get too bogged down in this, and different hormones are released that can change your behavior. Now, you might think, hormones change behavior? Well, sure. The pituitary uh, controls the release of pitocin and oxytocin when labor starts. And you might think, what do you mean? That's not behavior. You ever watch a woman have a baby? There's a lot of behavior. There's a lot of behavior. And there's a lot of this. Just shut up and do what you're told. That's to the guys. It's an extremely intense thing to watch happen. It's cool as hell. Because at that point, you go, hey, I don't need to make friends. I can make my own people. <laughs> pretty great. <laughs> but it's pretty complicated behavior. Right? But you might think that's still, it's kind of primal. Sure. Other animals go through labor. Any, any mammal does. Um, you know, if I gave you a testosterone and sat you in a room, in two groups, we're going to get two groups of people. All of you, I'm not going to do this, by the way, because I've had this go through ethics, but if I have, you guys are here, and you guys are here, and I'm going to give all you guys a shot of testosterone, and I'm going to give you guys a shot of uh, saline. So I'm not going to, I'm going to tell you it's testosterone. We're not going to tell you it's anything. And now what we're going to do is we're going to have a little, little fun. What I'm going to do is, is, is somebody who's a confederate is going to sit in like the waiting room with you and just be a little competitive with you. Maybe play a little uh, garbage can basketball. You know, you throw, throw them the garbage in the basket. Oh, you'll take it way more seriously and get made more and more angry and way more intense if you're full of testosterone. If you're an man or a woman, it doesn't matter. That seems a little more If I took testosterone and gave it to rats, and we had one set of rats that, we could have male and female rats, we could over-ectomize half the females, we can uh, move to the testes of half of the males. So then we have four groups, right? and we can give them testosterone, we can not give them testosterone, whatever. But the cool thing that happens here is, if we look at the behavior on a maze, the maze is the thing, that's maybe a very simple maze like this. 
so it looks kind of like an asterisk. It shouldn't have that, it should let you make an asterisk. I just screwed up, so it shouldn't have this long bit here. But anyway, it's called an eight-arm radial maze, the spokes of, the, of a wheel, that kind of thing. And there's food at the end of each arm. Rats task to put it in the middle is the food. Uh, rats don't start at the top and go around, which is what we would all do. They do it, it looks like a random, fuzzy random fashion, except that they get them right. I mean, the first seven choices are correct. It's the eighth one, between seven and eight correct. After about four or five times through, they don't make mistakes. You give any of the rats testosterone, they do better than the rats don't have testosterone. There are effects on spatial ability in rats of testosterone. That would be the female or the male rats. People. They're very small effects. They're very small effects. They're, they're actually real effects. They don't mean anything in daily life. But if you look at work that's been done of giving people uh, a task that they have to do, a very simple task, which is throwing uh, a Nerf ball at a target, like a Velcro target, and throwing it underhand. which is something that very few of us have done, maybe thrown overhand, not underhand. And then if I put prisms on your eyes, like glasses that just shift everything over 45 degrees, you make a lot of mistakes. Because you, you very, by the way, within a couple, within like a minute, you're fine. You can, you can adjust very quickly. But at first you make mistakes. And on average, men do better than this than women. But it's such a small difference. It's, it's a real difference, but it's small than the matter. But it's a real difference. There's effects uh, when women are ovulating, they do more poorly on this than when they're not ovulating. That's the hormonal effect. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't drive a car when you're, oh, I'm having my period, I can't drive. You can't use that to the cop, right? You, you were speeding. Well, I know, but you know. Have my period. Or, guys, or doesn't matter what, if your partner is a woman who's ovulating or having your period, they'll say, oh, you can't do that because you're hormone. Don't do that. That's what a jerk does, because it's also not supported by any science. These effects are real, but they're very small. They're, they don't matter a whole lot, but they're real effects. What happens in humans, and it happens in rats. It doesn't mean women shouldn't be fire pilots, for example. Because you hear that. It's like, testosterone makes you aggressive. It's also important in spatial things. I don't think women should fly planes in the military. I think maybe you should become target practice. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of my favorite words. If anything good happens today, it's the fact that you've learned the word psychoneuroendocrinology. It just means the effect of <clears throat> hormones on behavior and the nervous system. I just put it there because I, like, I just like saying it. It's the kind of word you can drop into a conversation. Right? So maybe, I don't know, people probably still talk to their parents. I mean, I hope you talk to your parents. I mean, like, but not about, hope your parents aren't calling you at this point. What did you learn in school today? But if it does happen, just say psychoneuroendocrinology. Mom and dad won't even know what that is, and they'll all be good. Unless they're psychoneuroendocrinologists. <clears throat> And they'll be like, oh, well, good. Finally, something interesting. So our autonomic nervous system, then, is what's 
controlling our behavior, but it's hormonal. And a lot of times, think about the fight or flight response. You know the fight or flight response, right? You're getting ready for a, well, if you're ever in danger, your pupils dilate, your heart beats fast, right? Blood pumps away from your guts and towards your muscles so you can fight or run away. Yeah? But it, it doesn't happen basis, seemingly automatically. It, takes, it can take some time. Right? It'll take maybe 30 or 45 seconds. I, I remember driving uh, on Highway 69, our family, and my wife who drives the car because, you know, <laughs> don't do a lot of driving. And we almost hit head on with an 18 wheeler, a big tra transport truck in it. Uh, she swerved off. Everything was great. She's amazing, great driver. And I, I looked at her and I said, uh, we should pull off the road for a second. She said, why? Because you're about to really kind of have a very unpleasant experience. What's going to happen is your heartbeat's going to go up and your mouth's going to get all dry because I knew it was coming. That was a life-threatening situation. But it takes uh, 45 seconds for, that, for the epinephrine, so that's the, the adrenaline, to do, stuff, do enough stuff to you to feel it, to make your pupils dilate, to move the blood away from your guts and into your muscles, your skeletal muscles, uh, for your heart to beat fast, basically to get ready to kick some ass or run away. Right? That's what you're trying to do at that point. That's what your nervous system's trying to do. You want go to hell. Okay. You just you don't constantly have to get a little pop out here. Yeah, Shut up. I hate everything. Sorry, that 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 was a little personal. I really need a great deal of therapy. That's therapy. Anyway, um, but yeah, so I said, you should pull over, and she did, and it was like, then it was great, because like 15 seconds later, she's like, oh, you're right. <laughs> I said, yeah, it's, it's okay, it'll, go, it'll be gone in another 45 seconds, but you probably wouldn't, be, wouldn't want to be driving at that point. Uh, I know I, I cycle a lot, um, and I have like telemetry from my heart rate and my bike and all this stuff, and it's on my phone, and I can look at it and see it on my, my phone, and whenever anything like that scares me happens, like some idiot walking their dog and a dog or a bear. You ever see a family of bears when you're up biking? Because I've done that. And you're riding along like, oh, well, I guess I should keep moving and do it quickly. And then I look down about 10 seconds later. It's like, oh, look at my heart rate. It's at 160. I know why that is because now my body's like, go fight the bears. Actually, what my body is saying is run away from the bears, Dave. There we go. So it's a little slower than the autonomic nervous system. Well, that's brain. Let's talk about behavior. So if you thought the definition of brain was amorphous, it was hard to get our hands on, let's talk about behavior. What is behavior? OK, I looked this up in some online dictionary. One assumes it's an American one, I think. Yeah, yeah. Now you got to remember a couple things. First of all, dictionaries describe how we use language. They aren't a set, they're not a set of rules. I'm going to look at the dictionary. Pretty good, you're great. It just describes, the dictionaries are prescriptive. They're not, or sorry, they're, they're descriptive, not prescriptive. But anything an organism does, including action and response to stimulation, response of an individual group or species to its environment. 
action and response to stimuli. We tend to think of those stimuli being internal things. I can make extremely simple behavior happen to any of you right now. To all of you. Think about your favorite food. Just do it. Notice how you're salivating. That just happens. You can't control that. It's a thing. It's incredibly simple behavior. And you might think, oh, but you told us to do it. Yeah, sure. So do something else that involves eating or drinking. You'll, you'll, you'll happen. That's an internal stimulus. That's fine, except that we don't tend to think of things that look like that, do we? So we imagine pizza, like I said here, because I'm making pizza here, actually. Uh, yeah, and we get a reaction. So that's interesting. An organism. So the plants behave? I mean, yeah, I know there are, uh, they, they move towards the sun. Or you get the, uh, you know, Venus flytraps that eat bugs, or pitcher plant eats bugs. What do you call that? I don't know, but I, I, maybe it's because my training is in psychology, like I'm a psychologist, so I don't know. But I think plants are boring and stupid. Like, I mean, plants are great, and we, without them, we'd be screwed. It's not like I, though, I would be all for paving my entire yard so I didn't have to mow it. But, point is, I don't know if we think of it anymore. I mean, do you think of that? I don't think it's wrong or anything. Uh, there's uh, studies on how trees will communicate through. Through the, I see yeah. Well, no, through, um, I don't know if it's pheromones exactly, but they can tell each other there's insects. Sure. Oh yeah, that kind of stuff happens all the time. And that is very, as cool as that is, <laughs> like, I, I think it's just simply because I, I because of my background of, of you know my training. So we could maybe talk about plants, but there's no nervous system there. So you know, now there are animals without basically without nervous systems that kind of behave. Yes, please. Yeah. And what about the mimosa plant? The dashmina plant? It calls up because of the stimulus if you touch it. Oh sure, yeah. Well, yeah, they'll do things. Like if you put, like I said, if you take a plant in a dark room and you put a light, it'll go towards it. They do move. Yeah, no. So if you're touching a plant and, and if you're trying to talk to it, <laughs> yeah. you can't literally talk though. You can't, it's it can't talk. Plant. See, this is, it, you're thinking exactly, because we're related, you're thinking exactly what I'm thinking is like that the behavior, it seems more like a, just a reaction to something. Which is what that says, so maybe it just is, I don't know. Okay, let's move on. I don't want to talk about plants anymore. <laughs> plants are stupid. They're for people like Champ. He can go study his plants. <laughs> Glorified gardener. But, <laughs> tell him that. Tell him I said that. We'll tell our plants prop, actually. We have that right before. <laughs> oh, totally. Who is it? I'm Oh, I don't know. <laughs> so, that's fine. I'm only in it. It's all in it. It's all in it. <laughs> I like, so dictionary definitions suck generally for technical terms. They just do. Because they, they describe how we word, use words, which is what they're supposed to do. But using them as some sort of arbiter of the truth isn't great. It's, 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 most people doesn't, don't really realize that. But they just talk about how we use words. They, don't, they aren't rules. Especially true in English, we don't have an official body saying, don't say that. Right? Other, what other languages have those things? Right? So in French for a long time, people said software, and then the academy said, no, 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 it's fossil, it's logiciel. And we went, oh, okay, okay. 
In English, we go, oh, there's a perfectly good word. We'll take that one. That's a good word. We like that. We'll use that. We'll mispronounce it, but now it's ours. Um, so I like this. This is an interesting definition. I can't remember where the hell I got this from. But behavior is some observable reaction that has no obvious substance. You can't kick it. You can't touch behavior. Right? You can't touch behavior. You can touch brain. You can't touch behavior. Interesting. So I kind of like that. It's, it's, it's something we can all see, a reaction we can all see or measure. When I say see, I just mean measure. Um, but it has no obvious substance, right? So what, I mean, so what does it mean? I, it's still difficult to kind of get at that. It's the action of an organism having cause and function. That is a better definition. The action of an organism having cause and function. So in the moth example, the cause is the sound from the bat. The function is the evasion of the predator. Function is what the behavior accomplishes. Okay? Function is what the behavior accomplishes. And cause is what happens before it to make the behavior happen. So this is going to include learned behavior and things we sort of inherit from our folks, right? And not all behavior has an obvious function. So let's just think about human behavior, just th things we normally do, just stuff we do, right? What's something that you just like, well, walking is one. I mean, it, we, you, you had to kind of learn it, but no one really taught you. Does anybody here actually have kids? No, because you don't actually have to teach them a lot. They kind of do stuff themselves. I mean, you gotta do some stuff. You gotta feed them and buy them clothes. <laughs> you should do more than that. But they'll walk. One day, they'll pull themselves up and they'll walk like this. Because <laughs> that's how babies walk, right? Because they quickly figure out that if you go really fast, you won't fall. So they'll be standing up and they go like that. And go. <laughs> but that's what they do. They all do it. Within a couple of weeks, they just want no problem. What about language? Another way. We inherit the ability to learn language. That's where that's built in. But the language we speak isn't built in. That, that, we get that from learned things from, from our environment, right? You don't have to really teach your kid language either. They just pick it up. It's pretty cool. Now, things like walking and language clearly have obvious functions. There are things without obvious functions, though. What's the function of, I don't know. What the kids playing? What's that accomplish? I don't know. I don't know. Practicing doing things, I guess. What about animal play? Because a lot of non-human animals exhibit play behavior. So, so are you saying like puppies have fun? Yeah, I guess so. But if that's the only real function of a lot of these things, it seems, sometimes there's other stuff. 
not everything always has an obvious function. So it's while behavior has learned and inherited behavior, both of them will have a, a cause and a function, we don't always know what the cause and the function are. Right? And sometimes the behavior really probably has no real function. No, you know, discernible function. Any questions before we wrap it up for today? I think it's a good time to stop. One sec, John, anybody else? Yeah, which, which, which one? So, um, in, in the case of an action, if an organism has a constant function, yes. the bot example would be the cause of the function of invasion. The, yeah, the evasion, that's moving away from, that's, that's the back, the moth, so that's the sound, that's gonna be the cause, and the evasion, moving away is the function. The function is what the behavior accomplishes. So for example, if I asked you, why do squirrels store food over the winter? A lot of people would say, to have food for the winter. No, that's the, that's the function of it. Because it happens after they do it. Something that happens after the thing has happened can't have caused it. The universe doesn't work like that. Causes come before effects. They don't come after effects. So a lot of things that we say, oh, that happens because of this, no. And it's okay that in popular parlance we do that, but when you get in thinking about things academically, you should realize that cause and function are two separate things. All right, so uh, I think that's a good place to stop. So we'll pack in for today, and we'll talk about some history on Wednesday. Thank you, everybody. Good.
So thanks for listening uh, to the lecture. I I hope you got something out of it, as I noted in the intro. Um, These are copyrighted, uh, share like 3.0 Canada, uh, some rights reserved. So you can redistribute this all you want. But if you redistribute it, uh, you can't make any money off of it. Uh, and also, uh, if you mash it up, I get to mash up your stuff. Uh, most of the mu- the vast majority of the music I found was on an old website called GarageBand, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and then it was called Podsafe Music. So this is all music that I have, uh, that it's perfectly reasonable to, uh, put on these podcasts. Uh, if you are interested, I can oftentimes find the, the name of the band. The name of the band will be listed in the post and, uh, go look these bands up and, and buy their music. Cause, um, if they're cool enough to let me use this, you should be cool enough to pay 99 cents or whatever to buy one of their songs. Uh, on that note, I will see you next time. <laughs>